Professor Schaefer. Thank you, Malcolm. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I'm going to move fairly steadily, but I hope it'll be all digestible. I thank you very much for inviting me uh, to speak. It helps me a great deal to focus, and I hope it will help all of us to focus. There have been about 10,000 or 50,000 scientists working in a detailed way studying nature for 100 years. That's 4 million man-years of detailed investigation. An impressive picture has emerged, or so it seems. It's an evolutionary picture. It starts with a big bang. We can go right back to origins, it says. It goes through cosmogony, down to life, to DNA molecules, all the way up to man through Darwinian processes, and then mind gets tacked on at the end. It's largely deterministic and mechanistic. There are, however, a handful of scientists, but only a handful, seeing now, at this early stage, major flaws in this picture, which I believe demand a completely new science. An expansion, that is, of the existing science out of almost all recognition. And I'd like to outline a bit of those catastrophic phenomena which are now forcing themselves on the thoughts of the most thoughtful. I shall try to highlight some of the disturbing facets in cosmogony, then in biological evolution, then in man dealing with his food and insects, then in the mind-body relations and the higher dimensions slightly at the end. There's lots of question periods for the next million years. <laughs> How can I attempt an interpretation of so infinite a theme? Of course I can't. Not alone. Together, today, we just might get somewhere. If we are specially favored, that is. A seed just might grow. You might like to know a bit of my background in order to assess whether what I'm saying has any foundation or not. You'll probably think it hasn't, even if I tell you my background. <laughs> I'm Canadian. Still am. I've been in Britain over 25 years. It's my chosen place to work. Since age five, I've been greatly influenced by the metaphysics, which my grandmother, with which I was very favored, was able to... Uh, teach me, and then through my parents in the early days. And I had quite a few spiritual healings over the years. At age 10, I became intensely interested in atomic physics and mathematics. And at age 12, in biology, particularly birds and insects and migration. And by 15, I knew I would have several careers. And I don't want to go into those except to say that now I've gone through <laughs> 10 years of head of uh, research teams in atomic physics, quantum mechanics, uh, nuclear reactor theory, then into biology for the last 12 years, mainly concerned with insects, crops, pests, uh, meteorology, ornithology, uh, spraying, and so on. Now I have at the moment 10 PhD students. I work mainly in these ecological subjects. I'm a consultant to quite a few organizations dealing with uh, protection of large areas of the earth. I'm about to go to China on a lecture tour and consultancy to deal with the major problems of their crops 
uh, there by request. And faced with such responsibilities, which I can't possibly carry out, of course, I'm being a mere human at uh, this early stage in history. <laughs> I'm looking for something to help me to answer the uh, questions accompanied by millions of dollars. <laughs> These are huge problem areas. Our crops are under severe attack. Our food uh, sources are very fragile now, and I'll tell you more about that later. That's when we come to man and the environment. I want to start with the universe. <laughs> now, obviously, my experience is not enough for the task, and all I can achieve, possibly, is to give you a few metaphors and a few linkages to help form some notion of what might be required of the future science. I begin by noting that there's been a long-term paradox which most scientists do not face because they're too interested in their work. <laughs> and that is that our Western paradigm in science and therefore in, the, in all of your lives is atoms and chance and the laws of physics mechanistically evolving from the lesser to the greater up to man with mind added extra. But to me, on the other hand, and this is where the paradox is, we also know, as humans, as thinkers, that such a picture of four million man years of work is only a picture. It's a result of great mental activities, concepts, intuitions, ideas. It's a result of mind. And yet, the picture seems to be mechanistic. The universe seems to affect us through the senses and hence the mind, and yet we know that mind must be working the opposite way around, possibly projecting, as I believe, the universe and the senses. But I don't wish to push that point this morning. I want to talk about the ca catastrophes now appearing in the paradigm. To date, Western science has chosen to go from the outer to the inner as the prime direction. This paradigm has led to nihilism. All is chance. We are specks on a speck on a speck on a speck in an enormous universe. And therefore, with no meaning, all is chance. We must fight to conquer nature by matter. We, we use chemicals in medicine to attack our bodies. We use chemicals in our environment to attack insects. And so on. And this is what we do as humans. It is absolutely correct. And you know it, and we don't face it. Following this route, however, of natural science to great depths in four million man years is producing for the very first time extremely clear views of catastrophe for the paradigm, but I believe liberation for man. Let's start with the universe, the Big Bang, etc., and look at evolution down to the level of the Earth. This surely is the ultimate of the paradigm, we have now found a materialistic origin for all of us and our minds. We start with a, an extreme explosion of light at time zero, leading within a few microseconds to corpuscles, elementary particles so-called, with an rapid expansion of the fireball. This cools, condenses, 
out more matter, atoms, the atoms collect into stars, stars collect into galaxies, planets evolve around, uh, emerge out of the gas around stars, and so life gets going on certain planets, possibly. The picture seems quite perfect, and I suppose there are about 2,000 scientists working hard on the evolutionary of the evolution of the universe at this time and it's coming over the box to everyone repeatedly and you're probably believing it because we are so materialistically orientated yet consider the following and here comes the first evidence of catastrophe for the paradigm consider the following sequence of amazing coincidences in this picture this very clear evolutionary our picture clear because we want it to be so going into but you must know the details or you won't see how catastrophic the uh, paradigm is, is failing in my view and that of a few others in particularly the leaders in in gravitational theory and the Einsteinian universe on which it's based there's exactly the right expansion rate for this expanding universe if we were to go any slower the matter would have collapsed long ago the universe would have sunk back to a black hole if it went any faster galaxies could not have condensed out and you would not be here on the picture therefore life would not be possible and if you look in extreme detail in the theory you will see that by changing the expansion rate in the early or, uh, moments of the universe by one part in a million million by changing it that much in the picture it either goes too fast or too slow it is precisely the right expansion rate couldn't have been any other universe for us to be here it's that precise that unique now that's a coincidence one part in a million million <laughs> it's thought provoking now consider the following list of co coincidences and I'll only look at a few there's too much order in this damn universe of the fireball because the fireball is chaotic it's high temperature that's the essence of temperature chaos out of chaos came the universe and yet when we look around with radio astronomy uh, instruments we find extremely smooth isotropic conditions in all directions there's no almost no irregularity in the overall density of the universe far too much order picture is having great difficulties in trying to fathom out how you can get order so vastly great order out of chaos out of randomness supreme randomness billions of degrees centigrade at the start well maybe we'll find out one day consider the nuclear forces the forces which hold protons and neutrons together at the center of every atom of the universe and you if you change those nuclear forces by 2% you you will not be able to have life there wouldn't be any heavy elements and life would not be possible 2% well another coincidence got it just about right whoever's doing this thing <laughs> electrostatic forces 
mass of the proton, mass of the electron. The electron to proton mass is exactly right within 1%. In order to have molecules possible of just the size, just the right size in order to form complex molecules and therefore life, according to the picture. Got it just right again. And so on. Now, you, each one of these coincidences is a coincidence. But you all know from your own human experience, after a while, that coincidences are amazing things and beyond the usual definition of the word. And in terms of the picture, this, these sets of coincidences are now so disturbing to the 10 or 20 people who, in astronomy who actually think about what they're doing, uh, outside their extreme intelligence uh, in their theories, it's quite clear that such coincidences, one part in a billion billion, etc., means that somehow the end of the evolution is in the beginning. The picture, the paradigm cannot work. We cannot be going from the lesser to the greater. And to salvage the situation, these few people have brought up a new principle outside physics in order to hold this picture together at all. And it's called the anthropic principle, man-centered principle. No one understands this principle, but it's absolutely essential to have a principle. And this is the way science works. You introduce principles and you experiment and find out and you think and you find out whether or not the principles that you've thought up that have come to you, you don't think them up. The ones that come to you through intuition, whether they hold water or not, by facing them with evidence and testing them. And that's the Western approach. Extremely powerful. The only approach we have, really. I believe. But it needs another principle, the anthropic principle, not understood, in order somehow that the end should be in the beginning to overcome these amazing coincidences. And it, it's extremely perplexing. And most scientists will not face and can't face such a, a conundrum in the paradigm. Let's come down to life now, away from the universe for the moment, the uh, inanimate, apparently inanimate universe. Life. Let's look at life in space first. First, uh, we all know that there's dust between all the galaxies and inside the galaxies, etc., throughout space. All telescopes show that. It was thought for a while that those were just atoms. Then it was discovered 15 years ago that they were organic molecules. And now there's evidence in the last few years that in fact they're not mainly organic molecules they're living things filling the universe the dust is living but before even getting to the living stage when you've discovered 15 years ago that all the evidence fits fairly well to them these things being organic these are complex molecules it was possible then with, with the greatest minds knowing the most mathematics and the most about the paradigm, to calculate the probabilities that those molecules could have been formed in space by random events. Simpler molecules or simpler atoms, hydrogens and so on, carbons, fl flying around, meeting, sticking, according to the laws of quantum mechanics and so on. Um, and those numbers have been calculated and the probability of even getting a single one within the entire 10,000 million years of the Big Bang universe 
and within all uh, 10 to the power of 20, that's 10 with 20 zeros after it, galaxies, all that matter, all that time cannot do it because the probability of even getting a single such event is about 10 to the minus 200. That's 10 with 200 zeros after it, one with 200 zeros after it, one in that much, plus or minus a few hundred. And because we can't calculate, of course, these things that accurately. But these are essentially zero. They're so zero that you have to consider them as zero. And anyone who's faced this in science, and only a few, although it's written down in rare papers in respectable journals by respectable people, if you look at these things, you will realize that chance is alone is not capable. And it's driving some major scientists into a new state of consciousness. 10 to the minus 200, 10 to the minus 300. Now, in fact, it looks like these things are not just organic molecules, they're living organisms. And of course, the zeros get added on and you decide there's no way that the Big Bang Theory uh, can hold. Chance alone is not possible. There must be an impressive information source, intelligence behind this. There's no way that the, the improbabilities could ever have been overcome in such a short time as 10,000 million years. There's an intelligence behind things. And when Hoyle was interviewed on the BBC radio just three weeks ago by John Maddox, an amazing interview, he's so impressed with these particular numbers, which have impressed me long before, about 15 years ago. It's, as soon as you look at the bio side of things, you get these numbers. Well, even on the organic. You have to change your, your mind about evolution, completely and utterly. And when John Maddox absolutely flummoxed when Hoyle said these things, said, uh, I, do you mean to say, in the words of Adam Smith, that you believe in an invisible hand? And Hoyle said, yes, I do. That's after 60 years of, of life with one of the greatest minds on earth, having pursued the opposite direction. And he said, I'm now going to devote the rest of my life to discovering the nature, not just the existence, the nature that definitely exists. These numbers indicate that. The nature, that's the science of these, this intelligent source, this intelligent background, this principle, whatever it is. When you come to cell, cells in organisms, 10 to the minus 200 goes to 10 to the minus 600, even more zero. And when you come to the logic of cells, you are in another universe again. There's no way, and if scientists would, most of them can't follow these things, of course, and um, nor can you. <laughs> No laughing matter. But it will come to the surface more and more in the next years. This is driving some biochemists to extreme positions like creationism. And I've talked about Hoyle. 
and it impresses me tremendously. There's an intelligent background before evolution can ever get going. If you start then to look at Darwin, Darwinian approach to the evolution of life on Earth, you're not too surprised if you look into it very closely that there is, on the one hand, tremendous amount of evidence for natural selection. We all know that you can have dogs from the size of mice to elephants and horses and so on by selection. You can have giants of this and pygmies of that within a species. But there is no evidence, it seems, when you look very closely for evolution of species. None. That's a very strange thing as well. There shouldn't be, by the way, if the Big Bang Theory and chance holds, because we've seen the impossibilities that chance could do these things by mutations or whatever in the time available. Something's got to give. Either you have an e eternal universe or you have other aspects we can talk about under questions. And I believe that if you were to... I'm, all the sources of information, by the way, that I'm using are from people who have worked at least 25 years and are at the heads of their fields and is pr in print. And if you look in those positions, you will find that there is no evidence, and they say so, and Darwin says so as well, of course, for evolution of species. Very perplexing indeed. The reason we believe it is our education, but it's pure illusion, like almost everything else in education. We don't know what else to do. What do we do? Genes, DNA, surely we've got something mechanistic here. But thank goodness we've gone into the details. It's only when you get into the details of the materialistic picture that you see it can't possibly be so according, that you can't deny the evidence that something's happening but the uh, story that goes with it through chance and mutation and one thing, molecules controlling the characters of animals that grow up with certain genes has had to be seriously uh, challenged as well. It's a wonderful book, little book, tiny book, about 50p or so, amazing value, best book in the universe, I should think, <laughs> per, per pence, a homology, an unsolved problem by one of the greats in biology, Gavin Der Beer. Well worth looking at. He gives an example in there on the genetic side. It's full of shocks, and he's one of the greatest of um, Darwinian biologists. It's full of shocks, and the greatest shocks come when you consider DNA and genes. The story is even more catastrophically collapsing if you care to look at it. For example, in uh, just one example, a very, very clear one to me anyway, Drosophila, the little fruit, fruit fly, which has had more genetic experiments done on it than anything, probably everything else in the universe, by man anyway. It's very um, uh, helpful, helpful uh, creature. It um, evolves, it, sorry, it um, has a short generations and can change very fast if you try to change genes and so on. Now there's one gene, or gene complex, called Eyeless. Genes have names, you see. They're associated with eyes or ears or whatever. There's a gene called eyeless, which is recessive. And if you have it from both parents, of course, it deprives the animal of eyes. But if you now inbreed, continuously inbreed, eyeless drosophila 
you, after some generations, get Drosophila with eyes. And these are not loosely done experiments. They're very tight. If you then, with the best mechanisms available to us in the laboratory, try to find out whether the eyeless gene, which was identified at the start, is still there. It is, and it's unchanged. So it wasn't controlling eyes or eyeless, eyeless or eye eyeing <laughs> a condition at all. Other genes, apparently, this is the outcome of years of looking at this, other genes apparently deputize in the absence of normal of the normal genes for eyes. They deputize, if you haven't got a normal gene, to prevent the eyeless condition. Why? And how? But why, particularly? You don't have single genes giving rise or gene complexes giving rise to this, that, and the other. They're terribly pliable things, and I haven't got time to go into any of that. Now, before Darwinian things got going, and we all sunk lower, in my view, it's edifying and yet it's destroying because of the nihilism that's connected with it. Uh, around 1900, when biologists and geologists and other people were looking at the universe, particularly biologists, they tried to explain things in terms of archetypes, a kind of platonic idea. They didn't know about genes and things of that sort. Archetypes. But Darwinianism put paid to all that kind of idealism and idealistic thinking. And yet, I conclude, and this is my own personal view at this point, that what we've just said about eyeless fruit flies becoming eyed fruit flies, etc., and the whole, all the phenomena of that sort, I conclude that genes and all the other biological mechanisms in our bodies and every other body are really servants they're not masters. They're servants only to, in order to create a reductionist pathway to serve a higher pattern. The pattern, possibly, which lies behind 10 to the minus 200 all over the universe and all those anthropic principles. There's a higher pattern pushing its way through and the mechanisms which we think which mechanistic biology, etc., thinks, are the masters, are really the servants. They are under instruction, so to speak, to create pathways. And if we blur a pathway or rub it out between here and there, another pathway is found. The genes are extremely pliable. The mechanisms are extremely pliable. And in a moment, you'll see how pliable insects are. An eye must be manifested in some way or other. To speak metaphorically for a moment, light seems to me to be a supreme archetype which must be witnessed and an eye must be manifested in some form, not necessarily materially, but at the moment. A pathway must be produced, a principle of least action or something governs from beginning to end. There are principles already of that sort in physics which need looking at again. Hence, the reductionist pathways are not deterministic. They will always be enigmatic, in my view, 
and probabilistic, and I think this is the nature of quantum mechanics, which we see in quantum mechanics. Therefore, the universe and life, I believe, are not evolved uh, looking at all these coincidences in 10 to the minus 300s and pliable genes and everything pliable. The universe and life are not evolved from the lesser to the greater, but rather the mechanisms, the lesser, are pliable and plastic and adaptable and respond to a higher life principle of some sort and to manifest systems of interlocking phenomena. Evolution is really unfoldment governed by a higher dimensional ground than, the ma than matter or the human mind. Man in the environment, we're now down on Earth. Uh, we've got through all of evolution and now we're looking at how to exist. Food supplies, insects are my example. Our paradigm here, coming out of this deterministic Big Bang concept, which we all suffer from and work upon most of the time, although we may not believe it, it still is in force in our, most of our lives, most of the time. The paradigm says, if you want to protect your crops, this is just an example of an environmental concept. If you want to protect your crops when insects seem to be around in great number, get out and kill them, mass kill. Man has the right to control. Control is the concept. Mass kill is the method. Chemicals are the agent. But what does nature say to this approach to it? And I'm intimately involved now in this particular area, in many countries and five continents. Wherever crops are grown, which is most places now in large amount, and insecticide is used, which is nearly everywhere, particularly in the third world and in China. More insects appear following insecticide use than you had before it. And the more insecticide you use, the more insects you have. Now, this is another paradox. Our stupidity of believing we have the right to control and kill in the process our first reaction to an insect is step upon it unless it happens to be a rather beautiful butterfly. Our abhorrence, not realizing that everything must fit together. If you've got 10 to the minus 200s floating around the place, everything must fit together perfectly. There's no chance about it. It's all nearly perfect. And if you start to wonder why with more insecticide you get more insects, and that's a fact. It's a billion dollar fact a billion dollar problem and it's infecting you everyone right now because we're down to the last few insecticides due to natural enemies becoming wiped out faster than the so-called pests because of resistance setting in which you've heard about and so on it's exactly like treating your body with chemicals the side effects are the same in the body of nature same type <coughs> This is now gradually being realized largely through my work by, I mean, putting it that way through my work. Resistance cannot be predicted. None of these things can be predicted. We have no control over the, uh, our understanding of this, but nature is fighting back. And because it has to hold together for these 10 to the minus 200 reasons, <laughs> It has to hold together 
It has to go from here to here. Things have to grow because the whole thing is intertwined in an ecological network. And if you start rubbing out this pathway by blasting insecticide and seeing all the bodies falling down, you think you've done it, nature just does that and reaches the same goal again, except that in the meantime, more insects have come along to show you as a mirror to your own theories that you don't know what you're doing. In fact, it's disastrous. And the last few chemicals are now uh, just, the, well, there, there's indications with the latest chemicals that their resistance is setting in in many insect species. It takes 12 years on average to find a new chemical, millions of pounds, and the insects can evolve in a matter of three or four years. That is through natural selection, unnatural in this case selection, by mortality, excessive mortality. We have realized, particularly through ecology, which is the science of the present age, marvelous science, bringing some light of the interconnections, we realize that we're faced everywhere with huge forces nearly in balance. And by applying small forces, although we think they're large, they're really small compared to nature, but still large enough, we can tip those huge forces and we have huge effects by a little bit of tipping because we don't realize how nearly perfectly balanced they are. Slight shift of billions on both sides gives you millions. There's a mirror principle here and this is where I first stumbled into all this. When I was beginning, trying to think how to get away from insecticides and or any of the other things, uh, sterile males, they don't work, sex pheromones don't work and so on. Oh, they do occasionally here and there for a few moments. Nature finds a way around. It's so pliable. And we can't predict any of these things because of genetics being so variable, because meteorology is so variable and influences all this, and because insect migration is so extensive, and that's my main field at the moment, through radar, etc. What are we going to do about it? Well, first of all, let's learn what does go on almost all science takes place indoors physics, biology, etc which is a crime you can't learn in my view anything indoors about the universe because you make your little tiny universe and you follow it for the rest of your life inside an accelerator or whatever nothing is learned or we wouldn't be in this stupid situation of realizing that our paradigm has got catastrophic effects all over it. We can stop killing to a certain extent and I've learned how to cut the chemicals by about a factor of 10 for the same job. But that's not enough. That's homeopathic on the way to homeopathy which is fine. That was an early good solid early base uh, to medicine. Probably the most solid thing that ever happened in medicine. All these wonderful things we know about in medicine are really hygiene to show you something you won't be able to see of course uh, this is a, a map of eastern North America but don't worry too much about it I just want to show you blobs this is year by year by year by year by year cross 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 the last 50 or 60 or whatever years of the condition of the forest in eastern Canada and, and US the boreal forest evergreen forest you might be able to see North American seacoast here Newfoundland 
Nova Scotia, uh, New York, and this is the Great Lakes. Not terribly well focused. Here's one that's better focused. These white patches show you uh, parts of the forest which are severely defoliated by larvae eating the buds. And you, if you happen to be living in the middle of this, you say, my God, what a catastrophe. Get out the spray, quick. That particularly if you live in an area where lo timber and pulp and paper, in order to produce lots of Sunday newspapers and toilet paper, um, is to be found, and you're over 50% of your population lives on the forest, you'll get out your spray, if you have any, which started, of course, at the end of the last war when chemicals were invented of this sort. And over the years, you see that this kind of uh, outbreak of moths starts up there in a the small area. Let's just start it here. And the area gradually, uh, well, it's more or less steady, and then it expands, explodes, bang, 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 all the way. There's uh, 200 million acres of forest uh, defoliated right across from central Canada to the east coast. And then it disappears because the trees die, blow down, forest fires, young ones come up. And without this cropping by this one species of insect, no more, we would have no forest at all. It's the way that the old trees are give way to the young, which are always there but can't make their way when the overstory is too filled in. In 1948 or somewhere around here, when this stuff reached down, there's the Maritimes, it's coming down towards the Maritimes where the forest industry is, is they say, gosh, spray, we've got chemicals from the war now, let's use them. So they sprayed down here, nowhere else. The plague, so to speak, is going away. It's gone everywhere, except here, and here and here, and here, and here. And it's still here, 25 years later. And you've had to spray every year in order to keep it. <laughs> now, Rachel Carson, and I, I won't say whether that was a great book or not, used this particular situation as an example, a very early one. That's true everywhere on Earth now not just in forests. On every major crop, everywhere on earth, wherever chemicals are used uh, regularly, which is nearly everywhere. Britain is one of the uh, least effective in this way. Signs are on, but we have been holding back a great deal on insecticide, although the pressures are on. The materialistic paradigm, pressures, commercial pressures, competition, everything goes with it, uh, is on. And that's the situation everywhere. What are you going to do about it? It's so bad that even physicists are involved in biology. That's where I, um, one of my major projects has been here with radars and everything else, trying to see what spreads all this around and what to do about it. And I've had nearly a million dollars from it, which is very helpful to the department. And it gave rise to a great deal of insight because we actually sent a team into the forest to sit and watch and look for hundreds and hundreds of hours with different kinds of mines than have been applied before. Uh, next one, please. And many things have come out of it. That's uh, just more detail of how it stuck around. Uh, by the way, since then, the whole thing has gone through again. The forest has been cleared up. But New Brunswick has, has come out of it again with exactly like that.
that was up to about 1964 or so. All this white stuff has come again. So we must be very careful what we think is destructive in nature and what isn't. And who is the great destroyer? Uh, I'm not going to pause on these, all these different kinds of insects, locusts and so on, Australia and all over the desert and Africa and Canada and the Arctic where we've had radars and aircraft and everything else. Next one, please. And it's simple radars first in the Sahara. Next one, please. And then more complicated ones in the forest in Canada with a beautiful artistic foreground. Something at least is wonderful. Next one, please. Uh, simple radars throughout. No, no expensive projects if you're going to do biological things. So you've really got to think very hard indeed. There's no NASA budget here. Thank goodness, or else we wouldn't know anything yet. We've actually, <laughs> we've actually had to use our eyes. And watch and observe instead of getting electronics out uh, only. Next one, please. And computers. And it's... These radars you're seeing here are used in very, very simple ways as well as very sophisticated ways. Next one, please. And we've been able to track uh, insects in the airspace on uh, countless occasions in many, many places and found that insects are extremely mobile. They're flying o they'll be flying over here again tonight if it's uh, warm enough. And um, they're flying almost everywhere where it's warm enough, up to high altitudes, thousands of feet millions and billions of insects moving overnight making fun of any uh, spray uh, control program. Next one, please. <laughs> and we don't, didn't know this was going on because it's in the dark and nobody uh, looked. And you can see... <laughs> well, they looked with searchlights, but that doesn't help much when you're a very small object. Galapagos, green fly, to a mile with radar. And you can see that uh, insects have tracks and they're all, ori they're all orientated, they're all going the same way in a nice sky. But we can't go into any of this background. We could under discussion uh, later if you wanted to. Next one, please. The, the senses of insects are phenomenal uh, compared to human senses in almost every way. And we hardly know a thing yet about them. Uh, their antennae are universes apart from us. Three seconds worth of echo coming back on the radar. This is the amount of echo. And you can see it going up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. That's the wing beat of the insect about half a mile away in the night sky. And on top of that frequency, which helps me to identify what we're looking at, on top of that you see a slow rhythm. That's the breathing of the insect half a mile away. And all these are well-established facts and printed in and uh, so on and so on and so on. And we've flown around with airborne radars uh, over the Atlantic. Insects go way out over the Atlantic and come back again and so on. I found great help from artists in trying to find a way out of the reductionist mess in dealing with our environment. But it's only early days, but it's a very powerful hint to me. Blake was the first. Two years ago, or three, I went to the Tate Gallery to the great Blake exhibition. Any chance of a light, please? And there on the wall, among the 300, was the ghost of a flea. The ghost of a flea. Now that's what I wanted. I wanted to know 
the, the nature, the essence, therefore mental, spiritual if you like, essence of an insect. You can get so far by using your eyes, but then you need new eyes. And here was a drawing, a painting, of the ghost or spirit of a flea. And it was very revealing to me. Any chance now of the next slide? Now that stunned me, because the caption was the ghost of a flea. He expected six legs at least. But no, it's in man-like form. Demonic, but man-like. And that is the clue. And that has altered my life. We have here, we have had a description of this given to Blake's friend, and it's in print. And he said, when he saw this image at the end of his living room, and he started to draw it, the image spoke to him while he was drawing. And it has uh, pincers or pricks for getting the blood. Uh, the essence of that, if I didn't get it exactly right, was that they are inhabited by the souls of men who, of those men who were excessive uh, with greed. There's no point in going out and squirting because the mirror of nature, as I've said, shows us back immediately our mistakes and multiplies up the problem. And the problem is not nature, the problem is us. Finally, Paul, St. Paul from the Bible, Romans 8, amazing paragraph after seeing Blake. He says, We know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain, just like us, together until now, for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. The creature also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption, the flea, from the bondage of corruption, from having to suck blood, for example, one of millions, into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Waiteth for us. In Philip's translation, I think, is even more beautiful. The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. Redemption is the essence, not chemical control, not will, not concentration, not man's power. Man is not the source. But through man, through man changing, the universe will change as well. The flea will be seen by us as it is, rather than expressing our greed. Now, these are my personal interpretations, of course, at this point. Willpower is not the way over cancer or anything else. But here is a trivial bent piece of metal from John Hasted's, Professor Hasted's laboratory. The book is lying out there, the new one, three weeks old. This is one of a thousand, which I still had trouble getting from him. <laughs> And I'm utterly convinced, and I'm not going to try and convince you now because I'm summarizing, but I'm utterly convinced by being with him, seeing his laboratory, spending hours talking, and with Professor Bohm, and interviewing Professor Bohm recently, at length, great length, that these things are genuine. They're in the presence of children, age 8 to 10, largely. 
Yuri Geller does it sometimes, but has to cheat when television comes around. And I won't go into that one. But has said is has done, and no doubt it's all clearly written in his book. He's a very fine chap, and he talked from this very platform one year ago, and that was a changing point for me as well, because I then got to know him fairly well, and I visited and so on and so on. Now, that is not done by willpower whatsoever. It's remarkable. You can hardly <coughs> open that up. That's aluminium toughened for aircraft use. It was a straight one, straight piece. It bent that way. If you look on the video tapes, remember every videotape uh, frame is one fiftieth of a second long, fifty per second. And these things happen between frames. They, they are so fast. They're at least, at, at the most, about a thousandth of a second long. And I won't go into details. You can read it all in the book. No doubt it's there. I haven't read the book yet. I'm, I'm still waiting for my... <laughs> it's going on tapes. I won't say which company it is. I've written a scolding letter last week about it. I shouldn't have to buy a book here. Well, it's already in the shops, and I'm supposed to be talking about it. <laughs> and the criteria have been given in a paper in Nature, vetted paper in Nature, by four uh, highly respected scientists in their own fields who've been doing, uh, dealing with this. And this is their summary of the way this stupid and trivial and useless uh, occupation of bending metal and yet so profound a shock to our minds you may have come to the Rican Trust thinking that you already believed in in uh, the mental side of things and you might even laugh at the other side but you're probably shocked as well or stunned as to how that's done no one knows of course this is the these are the criteria for success thousands of cases tried the successful ones psychokinetic phenomena cannot in general be produced unless all who participate are in a relaxed state a state of tension fear hostility on the part of any of those present generally communicates itself to the whole group the person who produces these phenomena must be considered to be one of the group actively cooperating in the experiment not an instrument or machine the entire process goes most easily when all those present actively want something to work well, they attempt to concentrate strongly in order to obtain a, uh, a desired result tends to interfere with the relaxed state of mind needed to produce such phenomena. Once the intention to do something has been fairly established, the conscious functions of the mind, insofar as they have bearing on the goal, tend to become more of a hindrance than a help. There's no willpower here. Willpower has not succeeded in bending these metals at all. And I think that spiritual healing has nothing whatsoever at, or this stuff to do with willpower. And it is that maybe a miracle in a way, but it's exactly the same miracle. And I'm glad uh, Hasted last year exactly the same miracle was uh, uh, shown while he was standing here that I used to use with all the uh, young people I used to uh, teach. Um, and that is that when I move my finger now, and not now, certainly not now, not now, but now, 
That is exactly the same kind of miracle as that. We don't consider this a miracle, but it is a miracle to science. There is no understanding of that whatsoever. Once the electrons flow, the um, brain waves, the, or the holographic image gets changed, or whatever picture you have, uh, you can follow it in great detail through the biochemistry of all the joints, the synapses, the muscles, the muscle fibers, the myofibrils, and, and so on, as I've done, uh, and many thousands of people are doing. But the initiation is just as mysterious and the connection as that. So that's important and yet stupidly trivial. Well, we've come within a few seconds of the end. How to perfect consciousness, if that is the necessity, which I think it is. The ghost of the flea. How do we see the flea? It's a practical, practical problem facing all of us because of our food supplies. It's also a theoretical problem, but the practical one is going to get us in the end. How to perfect consciousness. We have to demarcate, don't we, between the good, the true, on the one hand, in thoughts and concepts as they come, from the evil and the false concepts and thoughts as they come. How do you distinguish the holism that's required, the holistic philosophy of nature in my title, the necessity for it, I hope I've demonstrated to a certain extent, and I'll give you lots of references if you want them. But the holistic philosophy needed is what? Holistic means, to me, comes from the word whole, which is the root of holy. Certainly got something holy about it, like that woman with the butterflies. It also comes from the same word root as hail. It's an old English word, hail, whole, which is health. And it's through health of ourselves and our natural environment, I believe, that we will learn about ourselves. We'll be faced with problems of health, and we are already, in our bodies and in the body of nature, and it's through that. And it's the new, the new science, the new religion, the new whatever you want to call it, the holistic philosophy, has to answer to the urgent questions of health which is directly related to the holy, to holism. Because if we get the, if we don't get the whole, but only the part, which is what we've got at the moment, we're nowhere. Heisenberg, very end. Although I don't really enjoy Heisenberg very much, and I think he's got quantum physics all backwards, but except for his principle, actually, which he is very famous for. He says, demons can be let loose and do a great deal of mischief, or to put it more scientifically, partial orders that have split away from the central order or do not fit into them may have taken over. Demons can come out of science as much as beauty and usefulness, demons of bombs and so on. I personally am not against atomic power in the slightest, but how do you demarcate between the good and the evil uses of things? The new science, the new religion must help us with this. The new science will have to be lived, not just experimented with. And it will not be Eastern only, if I might say so. 
It needs always to be testable, applicable to our health, to the health of the environment. That's where it's going to be rooted. That will give it reality and realism. It can't just be a thing of the mind only. Even though the environment may well be a projection of the mind, it's showing us through the mirror where we stand. So let us all, if we can, alter our vision in some way by expectation, hoping that we shall see the amazing central intelligence.